there's all of this emotion around the bargains from COVID that has been laid on top of all of what has been exposed in terms of the deep, deep imbalances in the way that our culture and our society is structured, imbalances around healthcare and education and race and and other forms of injustice. And it's like an explosive cocktail. Welcome to the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, and this is a podcast that explores the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Liz Stanley. Liz is an associate professor at Georgetown University and award-winning author of the book Widen the Window, Training Your Brain and Body to Thrive During Stress and Recover from Trauma. She's the creator of mindfulness-based mind fitness training, which is a mindfulness program that's been featured on 60 Minutes and NPR, and she holds degrees from Yale, Harvard, and MIT. I first learned about Liz in 2019, and I was immediately drawn to her story and her experience. Like me, she had a challenging experience inside of mindfulness meditation. She got curious about what had happened to her, and then went on a personal and intellectual journey over years that she talks about in our conversation. In the podcast, we talk about contemporary definitions of trauma and how this relates to the brain and body, the neurophysiology of trauma, including the relationship between what she calls the thinking brain and the survival brain, our current assessments of the impacts of COVID-19 on both individuals and communities, and also our hopes for the path ahead. So without further delay, here is Liz Stanley. Well, I'm here with Liz Stanley. Liz, thanks for coming on the podcast. David, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to get to be in this conversation and also to introduce you to people in the community who might not have heard about you or your work because we have um, so much overlap and there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about. But I, I'm wondering to start if you could, for people that don't know you, um, could you talk about about your story? Um, how did you come to this work um, around mindfulness? Where have you focused your attention? And, and what do you want us to know as we kick things off here? Well, um, I think the most important thing for listeners to know is that there is nothing that I teach and write about that I haven't had to learn from first in my own mind and body. Um, I often think that those of us who are researchers or, or writers, we write about what we need to learn for ourselves. Oh, and totally. initially I needed to heal myself and then I wanted to share it all with others. Um, mm. Like many other people um, in our culture, I come from a history of childhood adversity, a lot of childhood trauma. Um, I'm the ninth generation in my family to serve in the U.S. Army. So there's multiple generations of military trauma. My father and my grandfather both um, saw combat in multiple wars and uh, suffered PTSD afterwards, although it wasn't diagnosed. Um, And, you know, that they self-medicated in ways that had implications for our family system. And so that sort of set my initial wiring up in a particular way. And Mm -hmm. that then attracted a lot of other traumatic events to me in the way that trauma reenactment can happen. So sexual assault and rape. And then I served in the military myself and did, uh, I was stationed overseas in Korea and in Germany, and I did multiple deployments in the Balkans. That was, you know, stressful, all that military training and the deployments. But in addition, when I was in Bosnia, I had a near-death experience. I 
I had to be resuscitated, flown in a UN helicopter and resuscitated. And um, three days later, I was back at work in the field. It was it was just really intense. Um, and when I left active duty, uh, I left because I had reported um, uh, sexual harassment against me in my chain of command and my chain of command reprised against me. Oh, and um, so I, I left active duty to try and clear my name. And so when I was in graduate school, I was doing two degrees at once um, in that stuck on high fashion that I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. Um, I was dealing with this whistleblower investigation that lasted multiple years to try and clear my my name and reputation. And it was really challenging. Um, Through all of that, many, many different kinds of experiences of stress and trauma, I coped the way most of us have been socialized to cope, which is I compartmentalized, I suppressed, I just sort of pushed it under and kept going. And like so many people who've experienced trauma, in my case, um, it was my body that bore the burden of all of that denial and suppression. So I'm the quintessential example of what I teach. Um, and, you know, it my nadir or my apex, depending upon which way you want to look at it, I lost my eyesight for a period of time. And that was when I realized that that was the cosmic frying pan upside my head. I had to find a new way to do it. Um, And that's what led me initially to mindfulness practice and then to other skills and um, tools and techniques and some clinical training. Um, and then eventually I developed mindfulness-based mind fitness training, MFIT, um, which is a mindfulness-based training that's been taught in high-stress environments. I've partnered with a, several different neuroscientists and stress physiologists. We did four studies with troops that were preparing for deployment to combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, decade of published peer-reviewed research and um The book that I published last year called Widen the Window, Training Your Brain and Body to Thrive During Stress and Recover from Trauma. It's kind of the culmination of this very long arc of a journey. Um, But I think the big takeaway from all of that and that I'm hoping we're going to have a chance to talk about um, today, David, is that for those of us who come from histories of chronic stress and trauma, you know, mindfulness alone by itself can potentially make things worse. Um, And I wasn't prepared for that when I first started my practice. None of my teachers could explain to me what was going on. And it took a couple decades to understand the science behind why that happens. And Mm -hmm. that's what I want to try and share with the world. Yeah, yeah. I was so glad when I saw your book. I mean, when I saw the title around Widen the Window, and I know that's a frame that we both use, and we, we could talk about it for a moment, I think, to provide a frame for listeners uh, who aren't as familiar with it. But when I read your story, I mean, the story you're describing has so many chapters to it. Um, to come to the moment that you described with the frying pan, I heard it recently described as um, a clue by four. Had you heard this expression? <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> Someone said uh, you get a clue by uh, a clue by feather and then a clue by shove and then you get a clue by four. It just comes really, you know, hard. And, um, and I've met a lot of people. I have my own experience of where, where at some point the body says no. At some point, yes. we've hit that place. And and then I, you know, to think about the journey you've been on from that moment to then be where you are, having written this book and all the research that you've described. Can can you talk about Liz before we dive into um, 
all the different aspects of this. You know, could you talk about what are your days like now? I believe you're at Georgetown. You're um, still doing studies with MFIT. You're teaching on the book. What's an average um, kind of day now? How do you spend your your time? That's a great question, David. I mean, I think everybody's um, schedule and routines have been thrown up in the air um, with COVID, yeah, and right, right. lots of things have changed. Um, but at the same time, lots of things have stayed the same. Um, this summer, I've been very actively working on um, partnering. I'm partnering with a company called Sounds True to create an online version of MFIT. Um, we are in post-production now, um, editing and pulling it all together, and that will be launching in October. So a lot of time this summer has been spent getting that going. I've been doing a lot of webinars over Zoom for lots of different audiences that are feeling stressed and are looking to bolster their resilience during coronavirus. And as I say in many of those webinars, um, one of the major advantages or silver linings to something that is this disruptive is it's a, a all the routines and habits have been thrown up in the air and that's the best time for habit change and so um it's been a really good time for me to double down on my own habits for self-regulation and resilience but also to help teach others mm-hmm. and you know my my georgetown j job has been busy this summer too um as you know many institutions have been online um since the pandemic started and I don't usually teach on campus in the summer, but I am teaching this summer, um, and I've been teaching a course on international security. That's my day job. It's not this; it's it's in the security realm. But yeah. it's been um, it's been interesting to teach an international security course with so many more students interested in the topics of trauma and resilience, with everything that's been going on um, in our country right now. Yeah. Um, so it's. It's been rich um, yeah, pulling all yeah. of these different pieces together. It's, um, so students are more interested in, in talking about trauma. I do feel like trauma is just being talked about more and more in the larger zeitgeist. You're finding it with students as well? Absolutely. Um, yeah. And in fact, later this week, all the faculty for my program are getting together to talk about some real structural changes to our core curriculum um, oh, wow. to have it be a little bit more balanced in terms of diversity, in terms of really addressing head on. People don't, in the national security community, didn't always think of things like racism or sexism or um, colonial dependency or some of these other topics as having security implications. Of course Mm. they do, but Mm -hmm. um, they're not, they haven't been traditionally included in sort of a traditional security studies curriculum. So. We're moving yeah. now to make some of those things more explicit, and I think it's all for the good. I'm curious if I could. We, there's so many things I want to ask you about. You know, <laughs> I want to talk to you about the window. I definitely want to talk about where you and I have a kind of a shared, um, both personal experience and also an analysis. I think around the combination of mindfulness and self-regulation tools or the potential pitfalls of mindfulness meditation for survivors. So I want to talk about all that. I'm wondering if we could talk about trauma just for a moment, about what you're seeing right now um, socially in this conversation about trauma and and how it's being defined. And I'm curious um, how you're thinking about it these days. And just to be transparent about how I'm thinking about it is I find myself um, sometimes between I feel a tension between 
more traditional definitions of trauma that really ground inside of an event. And on the other side of the spectrum, really focusing on the impact of any event on a nervous system. Mm -hmm. And so there's this way that someone just came at me uh, in an argument where they they talked about a term called concept creep. A concept creep. I don't know if you had heard of this, but it talked about inside of the humanities, the ways that certain terms, including trauma, are are spreading and being used to actually account for more and more things. And so we had this argument or this discussion about where do we define the boundaries of trauma? Do we locate trauma in the event, the nervous system? And then there's this such a powerful history around trauma being a way to talk about whose pain is kind of culturally legitimized mm-hmm. and whose groups of pa- groups of people and communities suffering in pain is not. And I think this is so up right now with Black Lives Matter and all that's here around racial oppression. So I know it's a massive topic, but are you, how are you thinking about, how are you defining trauma these days? And, and is this something that you've been seeing and how are you thinking about it? It's a great question, David. And I would say that you know, I came to, I, I want to contextualize my answer by saying I came to trauma through my own lived experience right. and then right. through a deep dive in trying to understand why my mind and body were acting the way they did, why I was compulsively acting in certain ways. And for me, the doorway into understanding all of that was really getting to know the neurobiology and the science behind it. And so, Um, you know, there's this whole other literature that I didn't read back when I was first getting started, but I have started, you know, I've read over the last couple years and I've been floored to see how much of this literature on trauma and trauma studies in the humanities, in history, and even in parts of social psychology is, it, it has no grounding in, or very little grounding in the neurobiology um, and that scientific understanding. And so these, these two, they're almost two separate conversations that are often speaking completely past each other. Right, um, right. And, you know, so the, the humanities focus on, on trauma seems very, it situates it very much in the event and in the narratives that the thinking brain can put together around events and who gets to control those narratives, which is often driven by power. It's often driven by institutional structures. Um, and how trauma was often defined in much of that narrative as those who were, or the people who were traumatized were defined as broken and malingering and the weak ones right. who were not conforming with whatever the, the narrative was. And all of that actually had the, as I talk about in one chapter in Wide the Window, those dynamics helped to actually perpetuate some of the polarity in our culture around trauma that leads us to disown trauma. Collectively, we disown it. And then it comes out sideways and all of these different symptoms of dysregulation and we disconnect all of those symptoms from whatever it was that was driving it. So it's the reason why I have focused so heavily on the neurobiology because it it helps us understand why minds and bodies are doing what they do without the narrative, without the story. It, it just it's natural law. It's, it's minds and bodies playing out the way that they have been conditioned to play out. And it helps us take it much less personally. And it also helps to take apart some of the, you know, the, the language that helps to solidify 
the injustice and the oppression that exists in some of these institutional structures that perpetuate things that are traumatizing. So that was a long context to set up my definition. Oh, yeah, um, <laughs> that's great. That's great. <laughs> you know, I haven't yet talked about the thinking brain and survival brain, but let me define the two things before I great, go yeah. because that's helpful. Um, I tend to think about our neurobiology, our, our brain, in terms of the functions of the neuro neocortex, which performs all of the thinking brain functionality. Um, for any of your listeners who are familiar with Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, the thinking brain controls the thinking slow things. So decision-making, willpower, executive functioning, like focusing our attention and making plans and following through on them, and our explicit memory. All those things are controlled by the thinking brain. And it's deliberate, conscious, cognitive responses to experience. Many, many, many humans identify with their thinking brain because... We know it's working whenever, you know, we hear that commentary in our head. Um, but the thinking brain, while it might have thoughts about and make meaning around trauma, it doesn't actually control whether we're traumatized or not. And this is the reason I use this definition because, or the distinction, because it's the survival brain, these evolutionarily older parts of our brain, the midbrain, the, the limbic system, and then the brain stem. Um, these are the parts of the brain that control neuroception, the process of um, assessing whether something is threatening or challenging and the process of turning stress on, all of our other survival functions, and also the process of turning stress off, recovery. Um, mm -hmm. And it is the survival brain's neuroception, the survival brain's process of assessing in any moment, is this threatening or challenging? When it does that, that's when it turns stress on. And if during a moment when it has turned stress on, when it has perceived something as threatening or challenging, if the survival brain also perceives us to be helpless, powerless, and lacking control, then we are moving along the spectrum away from just stress into the realm of traumatic stress. And I really like this definition because it highlights how much whether something is stressful or traumatic is not inherent in the event. It's inherent in the mind and body meeting that event. You know, mm -hmm. when I teach a, when I teach infantrymen, a squad of 13 of them, they have an am, experience an ambush. I tell them they're going to have 13 different responses because they're going to be 13 different minds and bodies that, that arrive at that ambush. And for some of them, it might be stressful. For some of them, it might be very traumatic. And wherever we fall on that continuum between stress and trauma, that has everything to do with the current width of our window. And so things that have conventionally been considered not such a big deal, like workplace discrimination or social isolation or um, the dangers of driving while black or, um, you know, sexism in the workplace or other aspects of um, subtle or not so subtle forms of discrimination and harassment. You know, these things, thinking brains can often write them off, but survival brains can find them quite traumatic because mm. they are situations where we're helpless, where we perceive ourselves to be helpless and powerless. And that's especially the case when we're in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That was a long answer. I hope I didn't Oh no, it's great. Day. I have a lot of um, 
things to say about it. I one of the um, one of the metaphors I've heard around it. I think it's Paul McLean and the horse and the rider. Is this something that you've heard or familiar with? I no. It, it was new for me when I heard it and see if this holds water with thinking brain, survival brain is. And you, to me, Liz, you're getting right to the crux of where trauma is so uniquely challenging and difficult. This, this, this fact that just because we might know that we're safe on some level, that we can't actually regulate in the moment. The survival brain's giving us yes. a different message. Yes. And the powerlessness that people and communities can feel when the survival brain is sending that signal, turning the stress hormones on, and not being able to regulate. So the, the horse and the rider, see if this connects, is if the survival brain is more the horse and is kicking it up, that generally in our day-to-day, the rider is able to uh, regulate, steer the horse, um, be in some kind of control, but that when it comes to trauma and ongoing trauma, the horse might be you know, acting out, kicking up, and our skills as a rider, no matter how skilled we are as a rider, we can't actually um, regulate with the horse. There isn't that joining and that synergy that can happen, and it creates a lot of dysregulation. So that's one way I'm hearing the survival brain, thinking brain piece. How does that, does that hold water for what? Uh, Absolutely. That's a beautiful yeah. metaphor. Um, yeah. And it's often the case that those of us, it certainly was my experience and I've watched it in so many of my students, um, both on campus and in other high stress environments where I've taught, especially in one-on-one tutorials with key leaders in different places where they're very, very skilled. They might have done a lot of therapy. They might really understand their patterns. They might, you know, have have done a lot of their work, but they might hit a particular point where the skills and tools they know are not, they're just not working because there's such an arousal mismatch between the skill they're trying to apply and where their survival brain's truth in this moment is, what's going on in in their body and in their nervous system. And the fact that none of the tools that they know are working puts them into this extremely powerless and helpless place. And it just amps the arousal up further. It can be a vicious cycle. Right. Which it sounds like that's part of what you experienced over time. Is that right? Where you were able to be, um, quote unquote, high functioning. I mean, you were doing a dissertation during periods of pretty intense traumatic activation, but you were able to kind of keep a is it fair to say keep a lid on it? Like you were able to keep going through that experience until you couldn't. Is that is that part of how you experienced PTSD yes. and trauma? Yeah. I think it's it's very much how I experienced it. I my stuck on high phase where I was just um, such an adrenaline seeking junkie, and you know I just made it through vicious hard workouts that I think expended some of the hormones, but not all of them. Right. I wasn't sleeping. I mean, I went. I went months where I was getting maybe two hours a night. I was just constantly on. And the way that I functionally adapted to that was I did two graduate degrees at the same time. I mean, there was one semester I was taking eight classes full time. It was insane. I was just too busy to to actually pay attention to it. But there's only so long you can stuff it under. And, you know, my the longer you do and the more you stuff, like the bigger the eruption is eventually going to be. That's also natural law. Um, It's not surprising that I had some really big physical responses because minds and bodies aren't wired. They're not intended to be function that way for that for that many years and that many decades. 
Mm-hmm. Well, so we've situated then, uh, this came off of us talking about how, how we're going to define trauma. I really appreciate that you're grounding it inside of both someone's lived experience, but also the brain and the body. I mean, I hear that as a very practical approach that we could have a very important historical even contemporary conversation about how we're defining trauma and all that means in terms of, I mean, so many different aspects, um, insurance claims, doctors, we could have that mm-hmm. conversation. And I hear you kind of directing the stream then towards very practically talking about the nervous system and one's regulation and dysregulation and how that's playing out kind of irrespective of how we're going to find the events that are actually impacting someone. Does that seem like a fair s- summation so far? Absolutely. Well, okay, so sound. maybe. Okay, cool. Well, let, maybe we could talk then about. So I'm. So we talked about the rider and the horse and the thinking brain, survival brain. Maybe we could pivot here into talking about mindfulness and how then you have seen. If we just imagine, I mean, in this case, it could be a soldier that you were working with. It could be really anyone who is. Uh, you know, with the best of intentions coming to uh, a contemplative practice, maybe it's through an app, maybe it's often more online these days, but who's experiencing a, a significant imbalance of the survival brain and thinking brain, as you called it, and then are engaging in practice. And I imagine some people will have an amazing experience. You and I have focused on those that have had more difficult experiences and then how we can <laughs> help the most people have the most beneficial experiences. But if you just imagine someone practicing for maybe one of the first times with that dysregulation happening, could you talk through what have you learned about mindfulness or uh, and how that would impact a nervous system that is, we could say, on the fritz or dysregulated? Or what have you, you know, what have you learned over time about how meditation interacts with trauma? That is a great big kind of a big question, I guess. Big question, <laughs> and, and also a really, really important topic. Um, and again, this is a place where I learned it first in my own body and mind, without understanding yes. what was happening. And at that point, since it was only my own experience, assuming that it was just me, because my meditation teachers had nothing to say about what was going on and offered no kind of concrete. Um, uh, instructions to help it be different. They couldn't explain it. And so I figured I was just this weird oddball. And it wasn't until I was working with my first group of Marines in the pilot study in um, early 2008 that I saw that more than two thirds of the men that I was working with were having the exact same experience that I had had when I had first started practicing. And that was this big aha moment. I was like, no, no, you're not alone, Liz. There's other people who have this experience. And then it it created this burning intellectual curiosity. Well, why? What's going on here? And why aren't the meditation teachers teaching this? Um, After all of the the science and uh, both our research, but also reading uh, a lot of other research too, I really, in my own clinical training, I've come to understand for those of us who have narrowed windows where we have had prolonged exposure to chronic stress and or trauma and we've not had enough recovery, our minds and bodies are experiencing dysregulation and 
when you take a mind and body that has a narrowed window and you introduce mindfulness into the system, mindfulness by itself has the potential to make those symptoms of dysregulation worse um, and exacerbate symptoms and then leave, leave people thinking, well, what's wrong with me? Because the dominant kind of narrative in our culture right now around mindfulness is that it is something everybody can do easily and that it's going to lead everybody to feel calmer and blissed out. And, you know, there's, and there's so many places where people can access it and much of the language and, and story around it is that it's a very easy and quick fix kind of thing. I think it's not necessarily a quick fix thing, but our culture tends to make anything, try to make it a quick fix thing. And so it's created this set of expectations and I've taught so many people who don't have that experience. Maybe some do, but some who don't. Or they do initially, and then over time, as their survival brain begins to kind of peel back deeper layers, it starts to go a different way. So when we have mindfulness and we bring it into a dysregulated nervous system and a dysregulated mind and body, it's very possible for someone to become more aware of the symptoms of stress activation or more aware of their symptoms of emotional or, or stress arousal, but then not understand how to work with it effectively. And when we do this, this can flood our survival brain and our nervous system with this heightened attention on stress activation. And then that can worsen our ability to self-regulate and exacerbate things. So it's like the rider on the horse is getting really conscious that all of a sudden the horse is really bucking around and it doesn't know what to do and what to do about it. And that is going to put that rider into a kind of traumatic place because they're going to feel powerless and helpless. Um, in my experience, you know, to share some from my experience, when I first started practicing, I was only practicing 10 minutes a day. And um, I had been taught one of the classic mindfulness meditations, um, awareness of breathing. Uh, with, you know, making your target object of attention, focusing on the breath. And if the mind wanders off, you go back to the, to the breath. And, you know, some days I would sit down to do that. And it was just my mind was racing, which is very, very common for someone who's dysregulated or new to practice. But some days it would send me into like paying attention to my breathing. My breathing would get shallow. I would get panicky. I would feel like I needed to jump out of my skin and then afterwards, for like days, I would have like this refreshed um, uh, sense of claustrophobia and nausea and my insomnia would get worse and I'd have lots of flashbacks. And I knew that it was always happening after I would had one of those sessions, but I didn't know why. What was happening there um, was that... You know, when we bring attention into the body, um, paying attention to body sensations in the literature is called interoceptive awareness. And when someone is dysregulated, interoceptive functioning may have been wired in a compromised way. Um, childhood developmental trauma definitely affects the wiring of the ventral branch of the parasympathetic nervous system. That can affect interoceptive functioning in adulthood, Interoceptive functioning can be compromised, um, and then it's linked with, it's been linked in the literature with depression, anxiety disorders, PTSD, hypochondrias, um, and addictions. So if someone is dealing with those things, their ability to pay attention to sensations in the body, when I say compromised, what I mean is as the survival brain is paying, like 
watching the cue of our attention in our body, it is perceiving those sensations potentially as threatening or challenging, and that's leading it to turn on more stress. It can also tap into memory capsules of prior traumatic events, and then someone can go into a full-blown flashback. And if that happens multiple times, it can become kindling, where these internal cues in the body, completely independent and separate from whatever's going on in the world around, that's enough to activate the survival brain to turn on more stress. And so it can become this vicious cycle. And so what it means, I mean, this was a very long-winded answer to say, for people that want to practice mindfulness, but who come from trauma histories, they need to really be intentional about the way that they rewire their interoceptive functioning. Um, doing it gradually and doing it, directing the attention to target objects that are not going to freak the survival brain out so that the survival brain doesn't get re-traumatized. Mm-hmm. And we can do it. We can do it. It's possible. Our research shows it's possible to rewire the parts of the brain involved with interoceptive awareness, the insula, the anterior cingulate cortex, can be rewired in two months. It's just important to focus on target objects of attention that will help the survival brain feel grounded and safe, not yeah. get further threatened. Yeah. Oh, there's so much here. The, uh, you know, one question I have inside of this is your assessment. Of, well, let me back up and say, it's powerful to hear you break that down and really talk about in a neurophysiological way, what would be, what could be happening for someone who's struggling with trauma, who ends up having a you know, painful or dysregulating experience inside of meditation practice. I think just being able to have that conversation in the way that you just talked about, it, it's a really powerful one. And when you were talking earlier, when you said, you know, I, I came to this because I was having my own experience around this and I got really intellectually curious what happened it was when i first heard about you and then have now had the chance to meet you that was such a powerful moment to know that you were out there because some of the (laughs) people in my community will know that that was i had a very similar story of having a, a very challenging series of experiences getting really curious about what happened and finding that all paths kind of pointed me to trauma Mm -hmm. Uh, which was surprising to me in the moment. And then, so it's just been a long-term journey. You know, I hear about you then working in this case with soldiers who were actually having similar experiences to you. I was in a different, I was not working with soldiers. I was ending up doing somatic psychotherapy in the moment and having all these questions and study and research, but there's been enough overlap with you, but just to know that you've been out there and then to meet you now is wild. And (laughs) my sense is, that the message is definitely, it is getting out there. And it is, um, I think we've both had positive experiences. I'm curious about you here. This is partly the question of really bringing this uh, awareness to what we could call maybe contemplative community um, out of a, out of a concern for people's well being and saying, Hey, anyone who's teaching mindfulness, you know, this is a really powerful thing to ask someone to pay sustained attention to their present moment experience. And here, just a heads up, here's some of the thinking that you could have in the the framework or scaffolding around trauma. And I've had a pretty positive experience. And even the last month, I thought, you know, 
I feel like this is taking inside of the larger mindfulness culture, if I can call it that, that people, mm-hmm. there's, there's an awareness around trauma. There's not a, not a ton of, of pushback. People are open, interested in the conversation. And the last thing I'll say is I don't experience it too, is either of us are, it's not coddling. We're not saying we need to be careful. Uh, well, we need to be um, maybe aware, sensitive, but it's not that we need to walk on eggshells around mindfulness. It's actually that there's just some cautions about ways that not everything is a nail to a hammer. Like we need to be, have some discernment about how we're using practice. So that's all to say I'm having a, a kind of a positive life moment of sitting back, really taking in the field and feeling like this message about the importance of trauma-sensitive or trauma-informed practice with meditation seems to be holding water for people. It's not fear-mongering. Or, how's, how about you? <laughs> how's it going over there uh, in Georgetown, the worlds you're in? Like, are, you, are you feeling hopeful or what are you um, seeing and noticing? I do think that there is way more awareness and normalization of these processes now than it was, you know, 15 years ago when I was first starting to teach. Um, at that point, there was so much, you know, when I initially first started working with the military, there was a lot of discussion in the mindfulness community about um the possibility of using these skill sets to be more aware, to be more attentionally focused, that these could be misused. And um, so the focus was very much on, is this an audience that is deserving of these practices? Um, And at that point, I had not yet fully articulated to myself in a way and to others in a way that kind of integrated all of this science to explain not only why those audiences, high stress audiences need these practices, but how these practices need to be taught in a way that's aligned with the minds and bodies and the context of prolonged stress and trauma without enough recovery. Right, um, right. So I feel like the conversation was, that was not part of the conversation anywhere, certainly not with high stress audiences. I think it's now much more much more accepted by the mainstream. Um, the, the term trauma-sensitive mindfulness or trauma-informed anything, those are much, much more common terms than they were a decade ago. So yes, I think that right. we've really moved forward in that way. Um, yes, and yes. I think you're absolutely right. It does not need to be done with fear-mongering or with scolding or with um, kind of cautionary tales so much as it, it needs to be offered as you know, different tools work in different contexts um, or different, the tool can work, but needs to be varied for different contexts. And I think, I think that understanding is there now. Um, And so it's, it's not to say that people who come from histories of trauma need to avoid mindfulness, not at all. There are ways that it can be modified, just like if someone goes to a yoga class and they have back problems, they're going to modify certain postures. Like it's just, it's the same kind of thing. And I'm hoping that um, as more people are getting interested in using these regulating tools, that they will, you know, there's now lots of different places to go to get access to different, different guided meditations, different courses, and that people will be able to sort into what they need um, to yeah. get what their mind and body needs from this moment. And that's, to me, it's good news. It's good that yes. that's not any, it's, I remember a moment um, in the mindfulness literature, maybe 
ten, maybe 10 years ago, uh, a review where it was saying, okay, we, you know, we have now at least inside of Western psychological traditions, 30, 35 years of some pretty grounded empirical research around the benefits of mindfulness in particular settings and populations. Now we're at a moment to get more specific. Let's actually, that, this is good news to then yes. move in the direction of, and you know, I meet, I meet so many people, I'm sure you do too, um, many people in this community who are fiercely creative and, and dynamic having conversations about best applications of mindfulness practices within, for example, prisons. Now we yes. have a whole conversation about ethics around prisons. I mean, prisons more generally, but people who are committed to actually to accessibility of practice to um, prisoners who have asked for practices to come in to then have a, a really grounded conversation about trauma informed practice of mindfulness in prisons. Does that involve an analysis around power inside the prisons? How do you actually do body scans inside of mm -hmm. a group if that's part of it? You know, there's just so many details and I'm learning about so many powerful leaders and people who are uh, digging into these specific details so that they can be in the best service of the people that they're trying to serve. So I really, um, I really appreciate the different nuances and I feel like MFIT is one example of like, Here's here's a potential frame of ways we can apply it in this direction, and I think that's really helpful for us over time. I want to talk to you about the world, and, <laughs> and uh, oh, that little thing. Yeah. <laughs> I have to take care. You know, the fact we we had uh, to be transparent to everyone. You know, we had um, was it maybe a month and a half ago we tried to record this. I think so. Uh, yes. And, had some technical problems, I think, or maybe it was oh, two no, no, months. No. Ago, right? We first tried to record this at the end of February. So it was before coronavirus before. had even happened. Oh, so, yes. you know, so here we are, wow, in a really different moment. And we were talking about how maybe that was meant to be. Mm -hmm. And um, you've talked about the window a couple times, and this has been a focus of your work. It's also been a, a really strong reference point inside of mine. And I find it a really helpful way to talk about what's happening um, and to understand trauma and adversity at a more collective level. So yes. I'm wondering if we could talk for a moment about uh, what you're seeing, but we could also ha define the window, however you'd like to define it um, as we as we pivot in there. Great. Um, so the window that we have been shorthanding now for at least half yeah, an hour um, yeah. is the window of tolerance to stress arousal that each mind and body has. Um, when someone is inside their window, they're able to function well, they're able to have both their thinking brain and their survival brain online working together as allies. Um, and so when we're inside our window, we can make decisions because our thinking brain's online, we can access choice. So we're much less likely to feel helpless and powerless. Therefore, we're much less likely to experience trauma. And when we're inside our window, our behavior can be aligned with our values and our goals and you know, it's easier to recover and downregulate afterwards or to upregulate if we need to. It's just that is the place for optimal performance and for the best connection with other people. The people who have wider windows are much more tolerant of uncertainty and ambiguity, which is an important thing during um, this particular period of 2020. Um, mm -hmm. more tolerant of change, more flexible when life, like plans get interrupted and life throws curveballs. And they're also better able to give and receive social support during stressful situations. So wider windows is this really important capacity that we can develop. Um, and 
it's a domain general thing that we can use in, in any life experience. Um, everybody's window can be narrowed. And in my book, I lay out the three pathways by which windows can narrow over time, childhood, um, adversity, shock trauma events like combat or, or rape or a natural disaster and mm-hmm. chronic stress in daily life. And so in today's world, um, lots and lots of people with narrowed windows. Um, I would go even a step further to say that the United States long before COVID, um, in the book, I, I lay out some of the really startling and unfortunate statistics uh, of the different kind of ways that the collective American window is so narrowed right now. Um, and that was before COVID started. So given that our window collectively was narrowed, it was likely that we would expect people to default into us versus them thinking, which has politicized so many aspects of this public health emergency. It was likely that people would um, begin to just have a lot of anxiety around the uncertainty with what's going on. And that's before people lost jobs and lost health insurance and um you know, lost loved ones. I mean, there's just so many aspects of the world today that are going to be window narrowing in general, but um, the collective window was already narrowed before coronavirus hit. This this is where I find the window such a powerful um, frame to talk about um, any given moment, because as I hear you talking about it, and as I understood it, it's really a systems frame. Yes. And we can we can be applying it to a nervous system, and I think that's very helpful for someone to say, "Wow, I'm having a day where my window is really narrowed." Or we can talk about the way that, as you just said, trauma and oppression can really narrow one's window over time, or the three different paths that you just you just named of narrowing the window, and then to be able to start to look at the larger social systems that we're all embedded within, even a family. You know, I'm around a couple of families in my neighborhood right now who are just under a ton of pressure. And we've been having a conversation, I'd say not explicitly about the window per se, but about how now over two, three, four months of being sequestered, of not having school or childcare, the, the way that this is pressing on one's window. And then as you're talking about the, um, the effects that that can have downstream of, okay, now my window's more narrow or the, the window of the family's more narrow. The survival brain is is not as integrated with the thinking brain. It makes certain decisions harder to make. There's a shorter fuse around temper. Yes. There's just so many ways that it just kind of compounds itself. Yes. And I see that happening collectively. And then when I heard you, you know, you, you had been talking about that we can go to the level of a state that we can be looking at, say, the United States in this example, and talk about the window is powerful. I have a question for you in it, which is you, you talked, you said um, polarization. And um, that it's, you, I think you said it's not surprising that in a moment of the window being smaller, that there's more polarization. I'm really curious about this. And in a moment where I'm seeing a lot of polarization, and especially online and this grand social experiment of, <laughs> that we're all engaged in <laughs> online and just how it creates this deep, often a deep polarization. It seems connected to the window and I have some thoughts about it, but I, I'm wondering 
do you know why is it that we're getting how how does polarization connect to the window or does it at all i'm curious how you think about that well i do think it's connected i mean i think that there are aspects structural aspects that are not window related that feed polarization. The fact that we have the ability to go into information silos where we have, you know, there's much of the research around social media shows that as conversations evolve, they become echo chambers where a group of like-minded people are tweeting and retweeting or, or communicating just with each other. And so there can be multiple different narratives or realities out there that someone can choose to buy into and have complete disconnection from other facts. That feeds polarization. That has nothing to do with the window directly. But when we are chronically stressed or when we are traumatized and we our thinking brain might not even be conscious that that's how we are. um, But if we are in that way and our survival brain is running a big part of the show, our stress and emotions are driving our decisions and leading to reactive or, or impulsive choices. That's also when we lose the capacity to really take in context um, that's when we are much more likely to interpret neutral stimuli as threatening or ambiguous right. stimuli as threatening. That's when right. we're much more likely to double down and, and try and like band with our own tribe and create us versus them. And so it's not, you know, social media provides this beautiful kind of beautiful is maybe the wrong adjective. I don't know what the right adjective is. So it's, like, it's like perfect in a, in a beautiful way. It's some of the effects are not beautiful, but just, it's like so perfectly aligned that you can have this very dysregulated mind and body that is creating these us versus them separations that is doubling down. And then you have this delivery mechanism where conspiracy thinking and alternative facts and fake news and, all of the malevolent actors out there that are deliberately sowing um, disinformation and um, trying to sow discord on top of it. And so you take these, these survival brains that are not, you know, these are horses that do not have good riders or the riders are a little like not fully in control of the horse and people are falling back on um, this sense of being, harmed. Um, and it creates this vicious cycle that leads to polarization. Um, and some of it's the technology, but a big part of it is the fact that, you know, we have so many people who are not comfortable in their own skin and have a very hard time just sitting still and being fully in their, in their body in the present moment. And we have been asking them to be indoors and locked up and away from their normal routines. And there's only a certain amount of time that someone who has that kind of mind and body can sit and distract themselves by binging television. And at some point, all of that dysregulation that has nowhere to go gets externalized. And social media has provided a very good channel for it um, Mm -hmm. to let that happen. Gosh, I include myself in that group these days <laughs> of like the, the real, um, the just, I can feel the way that my window has been shrunk, that it's difficult to be in my skin at times yes. and I can feel the distraction. And so I will automatically go 
by virtue of the phone and just to go onto social media and suddenly I'm there and gosh, if I'm not paying attention and I'm five or 10 minutes in, I can feel the way that I'm being um, targeted around outrage, Yes, which buys clicks, you know, it's just so, as you said, it's kind of this beautiful setup. Um, and then as you said, I think you're naming really powerfully the, the potential traumatic conditions of this moment mm-hmm. and, and then what's being exposed around all the different inequities here in the U S really around the globe, but who is being impacted often a black community here in the U S being targeted by COVID and experiencing more adversity. And so just the pressure on so many different people and communities that has now continued over time and over weeks and months. And I've been talking to people who said, you know, what's, what's most challenging is that I just don't know, or we just don't know when this is going to shift. Yeah. We're open and there's a quality of um, just profound dysregulation inside of it that I think you're speaking to. So one of the ways, just, can I say just one ahead. more thing on that point? Yeah, yeah. One of the ways that many of us have conditioned ourselves to cope with our dysregulation, consciously or unconsciously, and I include myself in this category, it was one of my mainstays when I was super dysregulated but high functioning. And I know it's like my own personal yellow flag when I know I'm moving in the direction of dysregulation, when I see this pattern show up again, it's a pattern of bargaining of some kind where, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to work the simplest version. I'm going to work for X hours. Then I'm going to let myself watch an episode of television, or I'm going to, you know, work X hours and then I'm going to let myself have two beers or, and I think people, everybody has their own stress reaction cycle habit that they usually partner with um, to do that kind of, of bargaining with themselves. And, you know, many people do that bargaining in terms of timelines. I can do this for X number of weeks and then I'm going to need a break or whatever it is. And the Mm -hmm. thing with COVID is it has thrown up. It's like, it's like, (laughs) I'm going to totally mix metaphors. It's it's throwing it all up in the air and then it's dropped the bottom out so that it's hard for people to let their bargains work the way they used to. And I think I, for I, many I, Americans, when the first lockdowns happened, a lot of people thought, well, we do our first round of lockdown and we're watching these European countries that are doing it really well, or we're watching these East, East Asian countries that are doing it really well. They were on lockdown for a certain period of time and then they were out and it was getting better. And I, I think a lot of Americans thought, all right, we do that and then we get past it and it would, we could go back to maybe not the exact normal, but we could go back to a normal. And that was a collective semi-conscious bargain that people were making, even as most people were not, not most people, but many people were not abiding by it. There were people who were not, you know, who were just flagrantly not following their public health officials guidance or not wearing masks or whatever else. And I think what's been so disheartening in the last month is seeing the infection rate taking off again and feeling like there was this huge amount of sacrifice. And we had this bargain and now the bargain isn't the other end of the bargain isn't being upheld. And that is that is like mm, that's like um, fuel for the flame for the survival brain to get really angry or anxious or um, just to feel betrayed. And so there's all of this emotion around the bargains from COVID that has been laid on top of all of what has been exposed in terms of the deep, deep imbalances in the way that our culture and our society is structured 
imbalances around healthcare and education and race and and other forms of injustice. And it's like a, an explosive cocktail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had not made that connection when you talk about the bargain and then that um, that feeling of, but wait, but there were sacrifices made. And then to be in a moment where uh, suddenly the walls are kind of closing back in with the death, you know, death rate, the count per day going up, or especially the infection rates right now, you know, made me think about to make a parallel to where you and I have connected around mindfulness, meditation, and trauma is I had the experience, and I met many people who who also did inside their practice, where no matter the effort, no matter the amount of time and sincerity that was brought to a practice that wasn't necessarily untangling or helping someone integrate trauma. And there was this sense of betrayal mm-hmm. in moments of like, God damn it, I brought the best I could with, with a full open heart and every resource that I could bring, both individually in my community, to come to this attempt to heal the dysregulation and adversity I'm feeling internally, and I couldn't do it, and I'm pissed. And that pain when life just kind of, where the horse is still kicking in some ways, no matter how powerful the rider. And I hadn't, I don't know if what you think of that connection, but I hadn't thought of the ways that's happening on a more yes. collective level, that there yes. was a real attempt. Now, yes. as you said, there's some subversiveness is, is happening. And I think that's powerful, the individualism in the U.S. and all that's kind of being exposed around what happened. But there is a betrayal. I'm feeling that right now. Yes. It sounds like you are too. It's 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 intense. Yes, and it's it's not just betrayal. It's also it's also traumatic because whenever someone has framed their experience in terms of a bargain, whether it was a conscious or unconscious bargain, but the bargain wasn't upheld and the outcome that you thought that you were trying to avoid or trying to fix by doing your end of the bargain and then it isn't met, it, betrayal always leads to this feeling of helplessness and powerlessness. And that puts us back into a survival brain perspective that, that is going to engender trauma. So yeah, um, yeah. it's a really, really challenging time right now yeah, because of yeah, that. Yeah. Well, maybe for this last part, we could just talk about, um, we could end the conversation here (laughs) or we could, (laughs) you know, why don't we, um, I I just ask you here about, well, what, um, I want to say the remedies, but where, you know, where do we go? Where do we go from here? And this could be in, in, at an individual level, this could also be talking collectively, but I'd love to know, um, what brings you hope or what are you leaning into? in terms of practice? Because I know you and I have focused a lot on, on okay, while well, trauma's here, how do we build individual and collective capacity to turn towards trauma, towards being able to integrate, to heal it? So um, you want to talk about what's either what's bringing you hope or what, what kind of practices you're looking to these days? Hmm. It's an interesting question, and the answers are kind of interrelated, actually. Um, I don't want to override either. I mean, we, you know, this is hard. This is a heavy time. It's yes, not that we need to absolutely. tie a bow on it. I don't mean that. Um, well, I, I said earlier, but I, I'd like to kind of reiterate again, because it, it is something that brings me hope, is, um, you know, the, the new awareness, um, the raised consciousness um, in our 
country about some of these deep standing imbalances in the way that, you know, health insurance only works through employers and then people lose that when they lose their jobs in the way that, um, you know, some just so many different policy choices on top of the deep imbalances and injustice of racism and uh, structural racism, structural sexism, and how those things and pre-existing conditions, like COVID just has been the perfect way to shine light on all of these different imbalances in our in our culture. It's, right. you can't change something until you're aware of it. I mean, we know that from our own individual practice. And there's usually this very messy period where we've become aware of a habit or become aware of a pattern and become aware of a symptom. And we don't yet know how it's going to heal and resolve and, and transform and transmute. And so we're living in this uncomfortable space where we know it's there and it hasn't changed yet, but change is only possible after we know. So we're in the, it's all getting uncovered and that has to happen first. Um, it's always the first step to change. And so as uncomfortable as this phase is, I keep remembering that that, that has to happen. There has to be enough, enough people who are aware of it for things to begin to shift. That's one thing that brings me hope. The other thing that brings me hope is just knowing what all I've learned in the last decade about our neurobiology as social animals, all of the neurobiological structures and nervous system structures, hormonal structures that exist to help us you know, be interconnected. We are not individuals. We're not separate. And right now we're feeling the negative aspects of this social wiring in terms of stress and emotion contagion. It's kind of out of control <laughs> right now in certain ways. Um, but the flip side of that, which is what gives me a lot of hope, is that just as stress and emotions are contagious and can ripple, someone who's really grounded, someone who's really present and um, regulated, um, their resilience is also having ripple effects. And mm -hmm. so on days when I'm feeling particularly stymied, um, and I read the newspaper and I have a wave of powerlessness. One of the first things I do after that is I get off my device and I, you know, I do a little bit of yoga or I go out in the backyard and I weed. So my hands are in the dirt for a bit with the dog and, um, get super grounded again. And then I just hold that grounding and imagine all of these other people because I'm connected to all of them. They're all connected to me. And mm -hmm. I know that on one level sounds very unsatisfying, but I do know that when I am in that posture and I'm interacting with people around me, it's having that effect. And I think if more people could get out of figuring out where the country is going and concentrate on being as regulated and having their window as wide as possible, it will take care of itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm not hearing you say that's that's not to bypass mm -hmm. anything. It's not to cover over inequities. It's not to mm -hmm. take away from the continued organizing that needs to happen yes. to shift policy and actually shift. Like I hear you say, this is this to me was a huge aha in starting to study trauma work was to focus on what's working 
and to be connected with what brings resource can support resilience and health over time. And that was a that was a game changer for me, realizing that my tendency to hyper-focus on what's not working was actually taking me out of my window and it wasn't helping me both in my life, but the people around me were also getting dysregulated too. And so you're reminding me of the power of um, coming back to the practices, again, not as a way to, to bypass. No, it's definitely not to bypass. And that's often a misunderstanding. Um, but our thinking brain is not going to be capable of the most creative problem solving that it usually has. It's not going to be able to access those moments of creativity and insight and ingenuity that we're going to need um, if we're not grounded and regulated first. And so it's, it's both. It's definitely not a bypass. Um, when I put the newspaper down, I'm not shutting that out. I am just redirecting my attention so that my survival brain and my body can be really regulated and hold it. Um, that's different from ignoring it or trying to bypass it. Yeah, that's great. Um, one more thing. It makes me think of um, when you were talking about the ways that so much is getting revealed right now, almost like the stress test yes. of COVID. Um, uh, I thought of a, a friend and colleague of mine. Her name's Adrienne Marie Brown. And uh, I don't know if you've heard this quote from her. She says, things are not getting worse. They're getting uncovered. And we must hold each other tight and continue to pull back the veil. And that really struck me as that there's so many communities right now, and I think a number of people who I'm listening to who are saying um, there has been powerful organizing or thinking happening around the systemic inequalities for years, decades, and that those voices in many ways feel like they're coming to the forefront to say, hey, we've been doing deep thinking about this. Here's a time to listen. And to talk about the organizing strategies that are here. And so I'm hearing from people and, and learning voices that are, I'm finding deeply resilient, um, that are inspiring me. And, um, and as you said, like, what's going to support the creativity and the creative solutions that we're going to need? Because I don't know about you, Liz, I just, sometimes I look up and it feels like just a fog bank. Yeah. And I'm like, how, where are we going here? And it's just hard to see the way through right now at times. Uh, so you're reminding me of the importance of um, sometimes putting the device down <laughs> and making a shift. Yes. It's so interesting how, um, as I was saying to you before we got started, I coach for a faculty writing boot camp, and I had my coach call with my, with my group of faculty um, before this, and all of them were talking about right now being in that pattern where after they put their kids to bed at night, they're putting television on and they're not even really watching and they know they need to go to bed, but the longer they sit there, the more that they, they just keep watching. They can't turn it off. And mm -hmm. we're talking about that kind of weird space where when we're sort of moving in the direction of dysregulated, we keep pulling towards, we're drawn towards these habits that are actually not going to move us towards regulation. So it's not a surprise that when we're feeling kind of distracted and, burned out and low energy and anxious, we reach for the device, we watch more TV and they might feel good in the moment, but they're not, they're, they're like little sugar highs. They're not moving us in the right way. Um, yeah. So it's great to have conversations that help us remember this biggest context and to recognize that those moments that we put the device down, they're actually helpful for all of us together because they're moving, yeah. they're moving all of us 
in the direction of a wider window. And that's what we need. Right. Yeah. We're all, I love when we get to track uh, um, people I know that are really tracking their window these days and seeing what widens it and what shrinks it Yes. and really paying attention and noticing what practices um, do or don't, or even what shows (laughs) if you are, if we are going to be watching TV, if we have that privilege, then noticing, just noticing the impact. And that's where the window, I found it to be just a really empowering frame. Um, not just as people teaching mindfulness, but as anyone who's practicing yes. to keep coming back to that window. So, well, we've covered, we've covered a lot of territory. Um, is there anything that we have not talked about that you want to uh, bring in here before we start to close? You know, David, I feel like this has been um, a fabulous conversation and there are no topics left unturned that I feel we need to turn towards right now. Great. Well, why don't we, um, Maybe we could have a part two somewhere down the road. That would be lovely. Enjoy talking to you. And there's, I feel like there's just so many angles we can talk about all this work and it'll just keep changing with um, each, each moment that we have. So thank you. Thanks for um, taking the time and for your work and um, look forward to connecting again one day soon. I do too. Thank you so much for having me um, on the program today, David. This was just an amazing conversation. It feels very generative to me. Me too. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Liz for joining us. If you have any requests about topics that you'd like us to cover or people that you want us to talk to, please email us at support at And we also always appreciate any kind of rating on whatever platform that you're listening to this podcast on. So thanks again for being here and talk to you again soon. Thank you.